Good evening. Who here knows what the website BuzzFeed is? I've seen a lot of head nods and hand raises from the younger part of the audience, as I would have suspected for the less internet browsing uh, part of our congregation, Belinda saying me. Um, BuzzFeed is a website that is famous for a bunch of lists with particularly catchy titles. And I fall prey to those titles all too often to things like 28 products that parents of twins swear by. Um, we don't have twins, but it's a good read. Um, 64 practical things under $15 to get 2023 off to a strong and reasonably priced start. And then my personal favorite, 24 times bears were the most relatable creatures in the animal kingdom. Ultimately, these articles are almost all exclusively horrible, but because of the title, it gets your attention and you're curious and you're like, I have to know what this is about or I'm not going to get any sleep tonight. So for our lesson tonight, we're going to talk about something that actually does have substance and does matter and is not exclusively horrible. If anything, it's exclusively wonderful. And we're going to have a fun clickbait title. So this is entitled tonight, Four Reasons Why I Love Jesus and Why You Should Love Him Too. And the hope is that a sermon that is effective, but also maybe curiously titled, is one that is easily shared with friends and people who need to know um, all the reasons that you love Jesus. So some important context before we, we talk about why we're, we're going to talk about what we talk about is that the things that Jesus says all throughout Scripture can be really challenging. It is not a particularly easy thing to deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow me. Among other things that he says, we're told to love your enemies, to turn the other cheek, to choose between God or money because you can't have both as your master, to not worry about your life but to seek God instead, and to rejoice when you're persecuted on account of Jesus. There are other things that Jesus says about himself that we know to be true, like I am the way and the truth and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. Or in John chapter 5, truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He doesn't come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. Now, that is something that we can swallow a little bit easier. The idea of eternal life, sign me up for that. But these other things, they're a little bit more difficult. And we know that the reality of Jesus um, leading to eternal life, his grace, his power, his sacrifice, is a wonderful prospect 
especially when compared with the alternative of eternal darkness or judgment and punishment. So if we have eternal life over here and eternal darkness over here, 100% of the time we know where everybody's going to choose to go. But let me confess that sometimes it's a little bit all too easy to follow Jesus exclusively in an attempt to get to heaven or to avoid going to hell. And when times are tough and a trial comes up or as your life goes on, either of those motivations, self-preservation or, or looking for a reward, they're not good enough. Those motivations don't create a lasting change and they don't make our faith and our walk sticky. If your faith is simply a mechanism to cover your own rear end, then practically speaking, you're going to have a really, really hard time following his actual commands to love your enemies and turn the other cheek and choose between God and money and not worry about your life and seek him and rejoice when you're persecuted on account of Jesus and ultimately deny yourself and take up your cross and follow him. Why is that? Why wouldn't that type of faith do the job? Because newsflash, those things are hard. The message of Jesus is so countercultural, both in the first century and now. It's an acquired taste. And you don't just wake up one day and say, I've lived my entire life for myself, and now all of the sudden, I'm going to live for Jesus and for other people. So how do we do it? How do we avoid the all-too-easy misconception that we're supposed to follow Jesus? We're supposed to be obedient to him, or we're supposed to love him, and we're supposed to be obedient and follow the rules. Instead of following the rules, the thing we should be looking to do is follow him. And following him instead of following the rules requires us to know him. Have you ever heard the phrase, to know this person is to love them? It's the type of phrase that you share when somebody makes consistently good first impressions and then maintains that. And just merely to know this person, you can't help but love them. That's Jesus. He is singularly the most lovable person that has ever been and ever will be. When we know him, when we love him, we're going to do what he says. And that's what our scripture reading was. Whoever has my commands and obeys them, He's the one who loves me, no matter how hard it gets. Not out of a dutiful sense of obligation, but out of a sense of loving devotion. That is how we make our faith resilient. That is how we make our faith and our walk sticky.
That's how we do the hard things that he's commanded us. So in order to deeply get to know him, tonight we're going to look at a couple stories in the gospel and consider these four reasons why I love Jesus and why you should too. And here they are so that as we read these stories, you can be looking out for them. See where you can identify them in the text. The first reason is that Jesus is compassionate. The second reason is that Jesus is selfless. The third reason is that Jesus deeply cares about what matters most. And the fourth reason is that Jesus is different. So as an important disclaimer, the apex of Christ's love for us was his sacrifice on the cross. We're going to look at these stories that are a little bit lesser known they're not, as, they're not as well talked about, um, and they're going to emphasize these traits of being compassionate and selfless and different and caring about what matters, but in no way does that take away from the foundational importance of the cross, because all of those characteristics are most true in his ultimate sacrifice for us. But sometimes, if you're like me, the idea that, yeah, Jesus died on the cross for my sins, and I am, and we hear it so often It's a little easy for that to ring hollow, despite the fact that that's the spot that should prick our hearts the most. So I think if we can reorient ourselves, take a look at Jesus with fresh eyes through a couple of lesser emphasized stories, by the time we circle back around with a deeper understanding of who he is, we'll appreciate the cross even more. So for our first story, turn in your Bibles to the book of Matthew, or the book of Mark, excuse me, chapter 5. Mark chapter 5, starting in verse 21. And the emphasis of our story is particularly going to be on this woman who is suffering with a, um, a flow of blood for 12 years. But that story is tucked in this chapter inside of another story. So if she doesn't come up immediately, just stay with me here. Starting in verse 21, when Jesus had crossed over again by boat to the other side, a large crowd gathered around him while he was by the sea. One of the synagogue leaders named Jairus came, and when he saw Jesus, he fell at his feet and begged him earnestly, My little daughter is dying. Come and lay your hands on her so that she can get well and live. So Jesus went with him, and a large crowd was following and pressing against him. Now a woman suffering from bleeding for 12 years had endured much under many doctors. She had spent everything she had and was not helped at all. On the contrary, she became worse. So this woman was suffering from this illness, this condition, for 12 years. Our son Ellis was just sick for four weeks, and that felt like forever. Twelve years ago, I was a senior in high school, which might look like that could have been yesterday, but that was a long time ago. Twelve years of this woman being sick? She had endured much under many doctors. 
She spent everything she had. She wasn't helped at all. And on the contrary, she became worse. That's what the text says. But let's put ourselves in the shoes of this woman because in order for us to see Jesus how he is, we have to see Jesus how she saw him. Due to her illness, she would have been considered ritually and ceremonially unclean in the Jewish nation. Specifically, the things that she touched were unclean. And not just the stuff that she touched, but anybody who touched the stuff that she touched is now unclean, not to mention anybody who actually comes into contact with her physically. So she's not only dealing with the literal physical problem of consistent bleeding, things like staining your clothes, being embarrassed, tarnishing places that you would sleep. But now this element of continual ceremonial uncleanliness is effectively a social death sentence in first century Israel. I want you to imagine for a moment that you're this woman. You can no longer have any physical contact with any of your family or your friends. You're not able to go worship in the synagogue. And this barrier creates more than just a physical separation and now relationships strain and die off. Anywhere you go, there are people keeping a wide distance from you with looks of contempt and disgust. Maybe you need to find a way to feed yourself or get a drink of water. Maybe you've got to go into the city for supplies. In this instance, you're likely trying to hide your condition, keep a low profile. Is it possible that someone recognizes you? Perhaps even worse, you start to bleed at the worst possible time when you're in the middle of the market. Someone notices and immediately shouts, unclean, get away from me. Why are you here? As we read elsewhere in the Bible, there was an incorrect but prevalent cultural belief that chronic problems like this were God's judgment on a person for their sin. So is it even a tiny stretch to see how she would have gotten more than a couple of dirty comments and insults and been written off? What sort of names do you suppose that this woman who society viewed as an outcast would have been called? None that we will repeat here today. But let's go deeper. She's tried to solve her problem by any means possible with many doctors, each time getting just a glimmer and a sliver of hope that maybe this time, just maybe, this will be the one that heals me. Surely something will help, right? Except nothing does. In fact, all of these attempts and likely extreme methods make it worse. So how do you suppose that this would impact this woman's faith? 
Do you think it would be easy to trust God after such a long and difficult journey? When time after time, her requests and her prayers to be healed were met with tragic results. When we come across this woman in Mark 5, she is an outcast, she is penniless, and she is desperate. And that all changes in the next verse. Verse 27. Having heard about Jesus, she came up behind him in the crowd and touched his clothing, for she said, if I just touch his clothes, I'll be made well. So this woman is an outcast, and she's penniless, and she is desperate, but... She has heard of the preacher from Nazareth. She's heard whispers, maybe even shouts, of the blind being being given sight, and the lame being healed to walk again, and demons being cast out. The things that people are saying about this preacher that she may have heard, that he is not just another rabbi, he's not just a prophet, but this could be the Messiah. She holds on to the smallest flicker of hope that this time things might be different. But it's not just hope. There is some real faith here. Her thought that if she could merely just touch his clothing, that would be enough, speaks to the faith that she had in Jesus, that he held the power and the answers to her problem that nothing else can solve. Let's read on and finish the story. Verse 29, Instantly her flow of blood ceased, and she sensed in her body that she was healed of her affliction. At once, Jesus realized in himself that power had gone out from him. He turned around in the crowd and said, Who touched my clothes? His disciples said to him, You see the crowd pressing against you, and yet you say, Who touched me? But he was looking around to see who had done this. The woman, with fear and trembling, knowing what had happened to her, came and fell down before him and told him the whole truth. Daughter, he said to her, your faith has saved you. Go in peace and be healed from your affliction. So how does Jesus respond when this woman touches him? When he's touched, there's power that leaves his body. The woman is healed instantly, physically. He asks who touched him, which the disciples then kind of point out is a ridiculous question. You're in a giant crowd of people and everybody's pressing in on you and you asked who touched you? Like that could have been 25 people. But he's he's not concerned with how many people touched him. He's orchestrating a moment here. Intentionally. So the woman comes with fear and trembling, knowing what had happened to her, and she falls down before him. And can't you just see this moment where all of the crowds are here and they've been gathered around and Jesus is insistent, who touched me? And she comes forward and falls down and everybody recognizes this is that woman who's been unclean. This is that woman who has all of this stigma. How's Jesus going to react? And Jesus' answer is incredible. With a single word, daughter. 
This woman who for the last 12 years has been starved for any meaningful sense of connection, an outsider from relationships is called daughter. I think that has to just knock her breath clean out of her body. Daughter is a term full of meaning and relationship and intimacy and safety, love and significance. Jesus calls her something that nobody has likely called this woman in a very, very long time. But there's also an intentionality that Jesus has in making a big deal about who it was that touched him. Because while her physical symptoms had been healed immediately when he touched her, there's still a tremendous amount of stigma surrounding this woman. By causing the whole crowd to witness her healing, he restores not only her health, but also her ability to reintegrate into this community. He tells her to go in peace and in security and in healing, things that she hasn't had in over a decade. Jesus is not concerned with the reputation that this woman had or ceremonial uncleanliness or stigma associated socially from interacting with her, nor likely the physical lack of hygiene with this woman. He sees her instead as a daughter, an image bearer of God and one who has faith in him. So in just a singular moment, this woman is able to interact with Jesus but in that moment, she profoundly understands who he is, what he's about, what his heart is like. She knows him, however briefly they interact. And how do you think that she reacts to this knowledge of Jesus? Can it be anything but love? We'll move to our second story. You'll turn with me to Matthew chapter 14. Matthew chapter 14, um, starting in verse 10. The he that's referenced here in this first verse is Herod, who was the ruler of Galilee, set in place by the Romans. Um, just to some, some context. There's more to the story, but we don't have time to, to read it all. So he, Herod, sent orders and had John, John the Baptist, beheaded in the prison. His head was brought on a platter and given to the girl who carried it to her mother. Then his disciples came, removed the corpse, buried it, and went and reported to Jesus. When Jesus heard about it, he withdrew from there by boat to a remote place to be alone. When the crowds heard this, they followed him on foot from the towns. When he went ashore, he saw a large crowd, had compassion on them, and healed their sick. So Herod has John the Baptist, who is Jesus's cousin, killed in a grotesque way, and John's disciples come and they share this awful news with Jesus. We see that when Jesus hears about it, what do you think the first thing is that he wants to do? It's be alone. Be alone to sit with it and to weep, 
to mourn, to pray. The loss of a loved one rattles us, especially the loss of a family member, and even more so when it's something so awful as a brutal, tragic murder in this way. So Jesus is looking for a moment alone. He looks for space to grieve. Do you think maybe he's thinking in this moment about the implications of what his own ministry is going to bring? Dreadfully considering the cross? That Jesus is going to end up losing his life in the same way that John lost his life? You think he's maybe considering his aunt and his uncle knowing they just lost their son? Or maybe he's just doing the same things that you and I would do and remembering all the memories that he would have had with John. In any case, the crowds see Jesus and they go follow him. He's gotten in a boat and gone across the water, but they follow on foot. And just when Jesus wants a moment alone, he steps ashore and there is a large crowd of people there. Do you think there's any chance that in a moment like that it would be easy to get frustrated? Hey guys, now is really not the best time. Um, Please, just give me some space. That's not at all how Jesus reacts. He has compassion on them and he heals their sick. Jesus, while grieving, takes the time and takes the energy to heal the sick. Not some of the sick of this crowd, the sick, all of them. So imagine this scene. This is a large crowd. We see later in the following verses that Jesus has further compassion on them by not just healing them, but that this goes on until late in the evening and Jesus miraculously provides food for all of these people from five loaves of bread and two fishes. And to put into context that miracle, we see the detail that's given in the gospel that says this crowd was so large, it was 5,000 men plus women and children. So how many was that? Was that like 8,000, 9,000, 10,000? I'm looking at the Tesh family. If it was the Tesh family, it'd be like 15,000. And Jesus heals all of their sick. I want you to consider for a moment when you've been in a time of hardship or loss, and the only thing you want in the world is to be left alone. And then what do you know? There's a change of plans, and all of a sudden, you now have to be around people. You have to be on. But in Jesus' case, it's not just being around people. It's that these people are all wanting something from him. He's being asked to heal sickness after sickness. And then, on top of that, he has gone the distance to even provide food for them. 
But let's not kid ourselves and think that this is just healing and providing food, because for a crowd this large, the reason that they're following him in the first place is because they have heard about his teachings, and they are going to pepper him with questions and say, are you the coming Messiah? How did you do what you did? Are you going to perform another miracle over here? Like, I'm getting tired just trying to play this scenario out, much less Jesus having to field all of these questions in real time. Saying, teacher, you had this you know, quote from a sermon, what does that actually mean? There's all of these crowds of people who are here for him. Asking, asking, asking. And what does Jesus do? He has compassion on them. He sits with them all day until late in the evening. And he gives and he heals. These two stories give us snapshots into the heart of King Jesus. His character here is remarkable. When we slow down and really consider who he is, when we get to know him, how can you not love him? He is compassionate. He is selfless. He deeply cares about what matters. And he's different. Who do you know that is like this? Who do you know that has compassion on the overlooked, the needy, the marginalized, on both big crowds of people and on individual instances every single time? Who has a heart like this? Who has compassion on their enemies? Who do you know that is so consistently selfless? Who puts others before himself every time? Who operates with a perspective that can only be described as others-oriented? Who else is so willing to sacrifice their own sleep and time and energy and solitude and mourning in the service of others. Who do you know willing to selflessly give their life for their enemies and to say forgive them on the cross? Who do you know that cares more deeply about the important things? Who else looks past what society may say about a person and who views people as important not based on their status or their ability to give anything to you, but instead is made in the image of God and therefore worth dying for? Who do you know that is willing to not just help people physically in need, but to take the extra time and effort to teach them the most important spiritual truths. Who do you know that's like Jesus? Who else 
can heal when no one else can. Who else has more of your best interest at heart? Who else loves as deeply? Who else knows all the nitty-gritty details of the wrongs that you've done and still pursues you? Who else is this patient? Who else is this wise? Who else? If we can really see Jesus this way, the way he really is, and have our faith not be a get-out-of-jail-free card for eternity, but instead our faith is in the one who's the way and the truth and the life, then we're going to keep his commandments. Because we love him. And there's nobody else that's as good and as holy and as worthy of praise as Jesus. The song we just sang, Jesus Loves Me. Are you kidding me? Somebody that good can love me and love you. Is there any response other than that fifth verse? Jesus, take this heart of mine and make it pure and wholly thine. In other words, Jesus, I love you too. And I hope that a study like this can help you see that and help you love him more. And that's four reasons, but we could be here all year long, and we sing a song called like 10,000 Reasons, we could come up with more than that. But he is worthy of our praise and our consideration. He's worthy of our lives and our all. Let's stand and sing.